The scripture this morning is taken from the Gospel of John in chapter 20. This is an incident after the women have gone to the tomb and have found the tomb empty. This is after Mary's encounter with the risen Christ, mistaking him for the gardener and and he telling her that he is um, going to go uh, to Galilee to be with his brothers. And so we find that in the, um, toward the end of that section, uh, in John 20, 24 to 29, uh, we know that Jesus has this encounter with the disciple, the apostle Thomas. We're told now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and mark the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. On Good Friday evening, I quoted to you from the Heidelberg Catechism regarding the crucifixion. Uh, There is another set of questions and answers that deals with the resurrection, particularly question and answer 47. The question is this, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And the answer is, first, by his resurrection he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to new life. And then third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our own blessed resurrection. So it's with that in mind that we approach this text, that we have been risen with Christ, that we share in the blessing of his risen life, this new life that he comes to give us. And by way of just introducing us further into the text, I'm reminded of a a sermon that was preached several years ago by uh, N.T. Wright, who at that time was the, the Bishop of Durham. He is a a uh, well-noted uh, Pauline scholar of the New Testament as well. Several years ago, he was sitting in a taxi. He was stuck in traffic in London, and he had a following conversation with his taxi driver. Uh, Wright was dressed in his clerical garb. He had his collar on, and the taxi driver looked at him in the rearview mirror, and uh, Wright mentions the fact that his face the, of the cabbie driver was a, a mixture of amusement and sympathy. And since they were stuck in traffic, the cab driver figured he'd strike up a conversation with this man dressed in a funny suit. So what do you do for a living, he asked. I'm a bishop of the Church of England, replied Wright. Is that right, said the cabbie. I'm Roman Catholic myself. And then to show he was up on current events, he said, you Church of England people are still having trouble about women bishops, ain't you? I had to admit, indeed, that was the case. The way I look at it, it's like this, he says. If God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, all the rest is rock and roll. (laughs) In other words, if, if God indeed has raised Jesus from the dead, and he has, 
then two things are certain. One, God has won the decisive victory over the forces of darkness and evil and sin. And two, he will win the final victory that results from Jesus' resurrection. That's the emphasis of the question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. Since God raised Jesus from the dead, we can trust God to work out all things in accordance to his good purpose, his good timing, and his good will. We can trust God to then to work out all things according to his plan. That's why you can say all the rest is basically rock and roll. But what if you're tone deaf? What if everyone else around you except you, gets it. They're having the time of their life listening and dancing to music and lyrics, except you. That is how I think Thomas must have felt when the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. They were dancing to music Thomas didn't hear. Oh, he wanted to hear it, but he would not believe that it was actually playing until he could see with his own eyes and touch with his own hands the very Lord that he had followed for three years. The very Jesus that his own brothers and apostles had told him they had seen with their eyes. And it may sound like a, or seem like an odd story to relate on Easter Sunday, but there's something about Thomas's encounter with the risen Christ that should draw our attention. It's why it's in the Bible, after all. John tells us that Thomas was not there when Jesus appeared to the disciples that first evening after his resurrection. And despite the eyewitness accounts of Peter and John, despite the eyewitness accounts of the two women who went to the tomb, despite the eyewitness account of the two men that encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Thomas still would not believe. And he is emphatic about that. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, he says, I will never believe. That is a strong statement. That is an absolute statement. And it's all the more remarkable because Thomas spent three years following Jesus from Capernaum to Jerusalem, from Galilee to Gethsemane. He'd heard Jesus talk about his death and resurrection at least three times, it's recorded in the Gospels. And so it may surprise us that Thomas says with such emphatic certainty and such emphatic passion, unless I see, I will never believe. And it's because of this that history tends not to be kind to Thomas. Doubting Thomas, he's called. But it's unfair to stick that label on him. Because several chapters earlier in John 11, when Jesus is making plans to visit his sick friend Lazarus and is determined to go there. And the other apostles warn Jesus and say, but if you go back there, Jesus, if you go to Bethany, the Jews are going to stone you. The only one of the apostles who had the courage to stand up and say, let us also go with him that we may die with him. Wasn't Peter? Wasn't John the beloved apostle? Wasn't James one of the great triumvirate of the apostles? No, it's Thomas. That's not the statement of a man 
who is prone to doubt. Let us go with him that we also may die with him. On the contrary, I think it's the statement of a man possessed with a, a passionate courage to lay down his life for the sake of the Lord he believes in. A man who is racked with doubt, who is characterized by doubt, is the last person you would expect to be willing to step up and die with the man that he has devoted his life to following. Sure, we know that Thomas and the other apostles, they all ran away when Jesus was arrested in the garden. But remember, the reason that they scattered away was so that the scripture could be fulfilled. They would strike down the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So the abandonment of Jesus to his tormentors by the apostles, including Thomas, had to do with his, uh, as much had to do with the fulfillment of Scripture more than any kind of cowardice on their part. The fact is that when push came to shove, Thomas was willing to die with Jesus. But then we go back to his absolute statement in John 20. Unless I see, I will never believe. Now, since we know how the story ends, Thomas's challenge and his encounter, his ultimatum, if you will, illustrates two things. Two things come out of the text. That in this instance, faith demands proof, and that secondly, the grace of Christ provides the proof that creates faith in him. So faith sometimes demands proof, and then the grace of Christ provides the proof that creates faith in him. So faith demands proof. Thomas again says, unless I see, I will never believe. And judging by his willingness to die with Jesus in Bethany, Thomas sounds like a, a passionate man. And passionate people grieve passionately. And when passionate people grieve, they say passionate things. Things like, unless I see, I will never believe. Passionate people say passionate things. And since Thomas is a passionate man, his ultimatum sounds more than, it sounds less like a man who is racked with doubt than it does a man who is passionately grappling with his grief. Grief and pain can make us believe, can make us say things that are not true. Thomas wanted to believe Jesus is alive. But because he wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the other apostles, maybe he thought, maybe he thought he was being punished because he wasn't there when Jesus appeared to them that first time. Or at least that was his perception. But as we'll soon find out, perception is not always reality. And there is a reason why Thomas wasn't in that room when Jesus appeared for the first time. There is a reason why Jesus waited eight days to answer Thomas's ultimatum. His passionate, grief-inspired demand, unless I see, I will never believe. I don't know what it is that you may think of Thomas. I don't know what we are to make of a man who walked with Jesus, who labored with Christ, who followed him for three years, who saw him perform miracles, who saw him walk on water, saw him calm a storm at sea, saw him cast demons out of people, saw him multiply loaves and fishes to feed 5,000 and then do it again to feed 4,000. 
What do we make of a man who is so passionately devoted that he is willing to die with Jesus and yet at the moment of truth, at the moment when he is most grieving, makes this incredible demand that unless he sees the wounds, he won't believe. It's remarkable because Thomas is not a newcomer to the faith, remember. He is an apostle. He is a believer. He is a Christ follower. And he lays down his, his ultimatum in very, very specific terms. What's also curious to me is that when Thomas says this to the apostles, that unless I see, I will never believe, no one in that room rebukes him. No one in that room sits him down and says, look, Thomas, we're telling you the truth. Don't you believe us? Do you think we're lying? No one corrects him. Which leads me to believe that they understood that what Thomas was saying was motivated more by his grief than by any essence of unbelief. That there was a pain so deep inside of him that he just could not reconcile the fact that his pain could be overcome by the joyous news that Jesus is alive. So let me stop here and just ask for a moment. Put yourself in Thomas's position. Whether you're a believer or not. Maybe some of you are here because you owe a favor to your mother or your grandparents and your friends. Let me ask you a question. What would it take for you to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead? I would assume, and I am assuming, that most of us who are here this morning believe Jesus, in fact, did rise from the dead. That we believe he is alive. That no explanation is required because our faith has been validated by our experience with Christ, encountering him in his word, experiencing him in worship, having his spirit take up residence within us. We believe the Bible when it says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, again in accordance with the Scriptures. We believe the Apostles' Creed. And then again, there may be some here who used to believe in Jesus. And maybe there are some here who have never believed in him. Some who may want to believe, but have suffered an injury, a hurt, a harm, that has left a scar. Oh, it's not visible, like the scars that Jesus bore. It's an inward scar. It's an internal scar. It's a scar of the mind, a scar of the heart, a scar of the soul. No one can see it, but you know it's there. And it hurts. It hurts so much that sometimes it makes you angry when you hear people talk so joyfully, so confidently, so affirmatively about the joy that comes from knowing Christ and following Him, from experiencing His grace and mercy and forgiveness. And out of that anger comes a scoff. You can't accept the fact that there is an, indeed a reality that defies our human ability to understand. And so we would say, well, faith is a crutch. Faith is something one leans on without acknowledging that at times even reason and science is just as much a crutch for those who refuse to believe that Christ is risen from the dead. That I will lean on what my eyes can see, what my ears can perceive, not what my heart can know. 
And maybe you've given God a similar ultimatum. You've decided that, like Thomas, unless I see, I will never believe. And up till now, God has not met your terms. You have not seen. You have not experienced the joy that Thomas experienced. You want to, perhaps, but you haven't. It's not rock and roll. It's anything but rock and roll. It's a cacophony of noise, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I have good news. Because maybe today, maybe today is your eight days later. Maybe today is the day when Jesus comes and stands before you and extends his arms so you can see the scars, shows you his side, the scars in his head, and says, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Faith demands proof, and the grace of God provides the proof that creates faith in him. It is interesting to me that eight days passed between the time Thomas said, unless I see, I will never believe. Jesus is is not beholden to our timetable. It it, it could have been, you know, Thomas could have said those words, unless I see, I will never believe, and instantly Jesus could have appeared and said, here I am, Thomas. What do you do now? But he waits eight days. He waits. He lets Thomas, if you will, stew And marinate in that grief and in that doubt and in that uncertainty and in that pain. And then when Jesus appears a second time to the apostles, he does so in the very same way he appeared to them the first time. As a sense of maybe reassuring Thomas that he is still included among that company. And as as immediately as Jesus is in that room, Thomas senses something is different. Something has happened. Something has changed. And I wonder, and maybe you have as well, what thoughts pass through Thomas's mind as he sees Jesus now standing in front of him? He has made this passionate declaration, inspired by grief to be sure, but it is still an ultimatum. Unless I see, I will never believe. Was he afraid? Did he think Jesus would scold him for his lack of faith? Did he think Jesus would would turn him to stone because he refused to believe that he was raised from the dead? Are you afraid? Are you afraid that if Jesus actually showed up, everything that you have refused to believe about him is suddenly turned upside down and your whole view of the world now must change because the one that you have run from, spat upon, despised, and doubted, stands in front of you and says, here I am. Decide. Be not disbelieving, but be believing. Whatever fear Thomas had that Jesus would be angry with him disappears the moment Jesus opens his mouth and says, peace be with you. Jesus greets Thomas as a friend. He greets him cheerfully. He greets him lovingly. He greets him graciously. And then he does something even more incredibly gracious. 
he looks straight at Thomas and he says, put your finger here. Put your finger here. Put your hand in my side. Do not continue disbelieving. But start believing and keep on believing. What a gracious thing that Jesus does at that moment. And John doesn't say how Jesus knew those were the terms of Thomas's ultimatum. How did Jesus know? That's what Thomas demanded. How did he know that? Unless somehow he was in the room without Thomas having seen him. Remember, the other apostles are listening to music he can't hear. So isn't it likely that he was in the room and Thomas just couldn't see him? We don't know if Thomas put his finger in the nail holes in his hand. We don't know if he put his hand in Jesus' side. What we do know is this. Jesus graciously agrees to the terms of Thomas' ultimatum. That is grace. Think about it. The Lord of the universe, who hung spread eagle on a cross three days prior, who suffered incredible agony, rose from the grave, and he humbly submitted to Thomas's demand. All for the sake of proving to him that he is indeed alive and risen from the dead. So, all right, Thomas, here I am. You asked me, I'm showing you. Do not continue disbelieving, but let's start believing, and let's keep on believing. It's literally the meaning of what Jesus says when he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. We don't know if Thomas accepted Jesus' invitation to put his fingers in the nail holes. We do know that Thomas obeyed Jesus' command to believe. We know that because Thomas answers Jesus and says, My Lord and my God, and he worshipped him. And Jesus received that worship. He doesn't turn it aside, he welcomes it. He accepts it, which is another proof as well of his divinity. Thomas demanded proof, Jesus provided it. And when he did, Thomas worshipped him. And Jesus received that worship. So I ask again, what will it take for you to believe in Jesus? Several years ago when uh, we were on the Cape, we listened to the testimony of a of a Muslim man who is the great-great-grandson of one of the imams that uh, started the first mosque, I think, in Nigeria. And he shared his testimony of how he came to faith in Christ. He shared his experience of, of praying in his room at night, and then suddenly Jesus appeared to him. And at first he thought it was just a vision, maybe a mirage. But he said, there was a, there was a fan in my room and as the fan would, would blow the air in the room, the curtains would move. And as the fan moved toward where Jesus was standing, it blew the robes that Jesus was wearing. And they moved with the breeze of the fan. And suddenly realized, that's not a vision. And he came to faith in Christ. It may take that kind of vision. Jesus is gracious enough to do that. Or it may take the words of a man standing behind a metal pulpit 
telling you about words that others have said about Jesus that the Holy Spirit will use to convince you that he, in fact, is alive. What will it take for you to believe in Jesus? What will it take for him to fulfill his ultimatum that he has not already provided through his word and the testimony of others who love him and faithfully follow him, who are not trying to pull the wool over your eyes nor manipulate you into a lifestyle that is somehow going to enslave you, but in fact is going to liberate you from whatever it is that has kept you from fully experiencing the joy, the love, the grace, the mercy, the fullness, the abundance of life that Christ provides. What will it take? What are your terms? What are your conditions? Because Jesus will meet them. He accepted the term of Thomas's grief-generated ultimatum, and he did so lovingly and compassionately and peacefully and with grace. Grace is why Jesus appeared to Thomas. It's why he met Thomas's conditions. He didn't deserve, Thomas didn't deserve to have Jesus appear to him at all. He could have left him in his doubt. He could have left him in his grief. He could have left him in his uncertainty. He could have left him scratching his head. Well, I guess I'm just one of those that just doesn't have it. But graciously, Christ appears to him. And he invites Thomas to make his examination to look at the facts. Go ahead, Thomas. Poke, prove, test. Do not continue disbelieving, but start believing and keep on believing. And in that moment, disbelieving Thomas became believing Thomas, and he worshiped Christ. So again, what are your terms for believing Jesus is risen from the dead? What requirements must he meet that he has not met already? And for those of us who do believe in him and sometimes find our hope stretched so thin it will, it will snap, what will it take for you to have that hope breathed into and made alive again? If not, the assurance from the word of God that he is in fact risen from the dead. Before you answer that question, or maybe you already have, but if you haven't, listen again to what Jesus says to Thomas. Immediately after Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen? <laughs> Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, that is us. We haven't seen him. We have not beheld him with our eyes. We've not heard him with our ears. We've not held him with our hands, as did the apostles. But we know, through the testimony of others, through the witness of the Holy Spirit, we know he is alive. He is risen. He is here now among us. Maybe the reason that some of us are here, we want Jesus to prove himself because somewhere in our past, Someone, maybe God, someone you trust, let you down, hurt you in an unimaginable way. And it hurt. And you got angry. And you've stayed angry all these years. And you found ways to cover that anger and to conceal that anger and to somehow redirect that anger into something that will make you productive. But it's still there. And it lingers like a cloud like garlic after someone has used it to cook. It just lingers and you can smell it. If that's you, I have good news for you. This is your eight days later. 
Jesus is here. He is in this room. He is a present among his people who have confessed faith in him. And he says, he says, as he always says to those who tremble in his presence, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. My peace I give to you. Wholeness, shalom, wellness. He is here to bless and not to curse. He is here to welcome, not to turn a cold shoulder. He is here to forgive and not condemn. He is here to heal and to make whole. That's why he's risen from the dead. He's here to give you and everyone here in this room new life, new true hope, and a fresh start. That's why we, we associate Easter with new birth, resurrected life, new life, new hope, a new start. That's why we wear new clothes, right? To represent the fact that this is a fresh moment. So the, the odor of garlic dissipates, and what we smell is lilac and lavender and cardamom and myrrh, and frankincense. And we're attracted to that aroma. The way a hungry person is attracted to the aroma of food, it invites us. It draws us in. And Jesus says here, I have prepared a table for you. He is here, is Jesus, risen and alive, to tell us that the war between us and God ended on Good Friday. It ended when he died on a cross that was driven into a hill that overlooked a town garbage dump. It ended with the death of the Son of God and a new life begins with the resurrection of that very same Son of God. How do I know that? How can I say that with such certainty? It's such confidence, such conviction. I'm not trying to sell you something. It's like that line from... The Princess Bride, where Wesley tells Princess Buttercup, life is pain, princess, and anyone who tells you differently is selling you something. I'm not selling you anything. I'm telling you the truth as revealed from God's word that Jesus Christ is risen because the sign and seal of the truce that exists between God and us, the evidence of that forever peace treaty, the proof of that blessed eternal covenant is the love and the faithfulness and the loyalty and the peace that Christ brings to us as a resurrected Savior who says, peace be with you. Look and examine. Do not disbelieve, but be believing. He is here now and he offers us this invitation. Make your examination. Take your time. Prod, test, prove. And you'll find it is really me. I am real. I am genuine. I am true. Do not continue disbelieving, but start believing and keep on believing because I am, as Thomas confessed, I am his Lord and his God. I am your Lord and your God. I am the Lord and the God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the vine, the true vine. When the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
we understand that to mean that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. In the same way, the ground is level at the foot of the tomb. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead is blessed. Everyone who puts their trust and obedience in Christ is blessed. Everyone who relies and depends on Jesus to rescue them from their sins is blessed. Those who saw Jesus immediately after his resurrection are no more blessed than we who sit here today and celebrate that same glorious truth. Even though we have not seen him with our eyes, heard him with our ears, and held him with our hands. And that truth, that marvelous truth that we are blessed, though we have not seen, heard, nor held him, is captured in the, the last stanza of a marvelous hymn called to a debtor to mercy alone, in which Augustus Top Lady writes, My name from the palms of his hand, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. We don't have to see Jesus to believe that he is risen from the dead. We don't have to see him to know that he is alive. We don't have to see him to know that we can be blessed by him. History may label Thomas as doubting Thomas, but we know better. We know that blessed are those who doubt, for they shall receive the grace to believe. Blessed are those who doubt, for they will receive the mercy to trust in Christ. Blessed are those who doubt, for they will be blessed by God with faith to trust in Christ now and forever. Today we celebrate Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We rejoice and we say he is risen. He is risen indeed. And as we worship him, we invite anyone who has yet to experience the, the joy, the wonderfully gracious soul-fulfilling, soul-satisfying, heart-satisfying joy, an awful, awfully peaceful moment when, like Thomas, Jesus stands before us and says, peace be with you. And we respond by saying, my Lord and my God. And after that, all the rest is basically just rock and roll. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is, a, it is a truth that stands for eternity. Christ is risen from the dead. The covenant that he has established between you and us, ratified by his, dead, his death, validated by his resurrection, is one that stands reminding us that we are forgiven forever that we are held firmly in your grasp forever. May this joy, may this truth propel us into mission, into loving our neighbor, into the confidence that your love can sustain us and provide for us in all and every situation. And for those, Lord God, who have not yet experienced that joy, that assurance, may your Holy Spirit continue to open their heart that they may receive the word of God and like Thomas, confess, as we have by your grace, my Lord and my God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.